welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to this OMFIV podcast. I'm Katie Ann Wilson from OMFIV's Digital Monetary Institute, where we cover all things related to the future of money and payments in the world of central banking and more. Today we'll be covering a very fascinating and hot topic in the world of retail payments and digital currencies. We'll be looking at the benefits of smart contracts for retail CBDCs. I'm very pleased to be joined by a group of global experts on the topic. We have Peter Fakis, Director of Digitalization from the Central Bank of Hungary, Imro Korsis, Assistant Professor from the Budapest University of Technology, Laszlo Gonzi, Associate Professor from the Department of Measurement and Information Systems from the Budapest University of Technology, and Chris Ostrowski, CEO and founder of Soda. Welcome, everyone. Now, lots of central banks around the world are exploring CBDC for different objectives and different contexts. So before we go into the specifics and the nitty gritty of the different use cases and the use of smart contracts, I really would love to turn to you first, Peter, to just get a a bit of background on the central bank's work in CBDC and also what led to your collaboration with the Budapest University of Technology. Peter. Thank you and hello everyone. So as just you mentioned in the recent years, the central bank digital currency, the CBDC has become a quite major topic in central banking world. For instance, uh, based on the BIS survey, more than 9% of the of the central banks are conducting some, some research and also starting some POCs or pilots in this field. So recognizing that the CBDC can represent a new step in the evolution of money some new form of money. The Central Bank of Hungary, the MNB, has set itself the goal that becoming one of the leading central banks in, in, in the CDBC research and piloting. So as the first step in this in this journey, we published a comprehensive, quite unique study volume with the title At the Dawn of a New Age, the money in the 21st century. It's quite unique. I, I think this volume is quite could be considered quite unique in a sense that we try to summarize all the motivations, the theoretical and also the design considerations and also the practical issues of, of, of CBDCs and then the whole framework. So therefore, we connected that, that both retail and, and wholesale CBDCs can offer quite promising opportunities. So therefore, we try to conduct some research and pilots on both fields. In the case of the retail CBDC, there are two main active projects. One of them is uh, is the Money Museum app. It's a testing uh, the adoption and also the implementation of blockchain technology in a central banking environment, which could be quite challenging considering all of the requirements, also from policy and also from technological and IT security perspective. So in this project, the MMB is providing a blockchain-based NFT non-fungible token issuance platform. It's operating since May 2022, and more than half a million NFTs has been issued so far. Our other CBDC project is the Student Safe mobile application, which is the first retail CBDC pilot project in the EU available to, to real retail users, and it has been launched in May this year. However, on the wholesale CBDC side, the MMB also joined the project Dumber and the project Enbridge, uh, the world's leading international cross-border CBDC project as an observer member. And of course, uh, last but not least, the MMB is also tried investigating the potential use cases in smart contract ready 
frameworks, smart contract ready CBDC frameworks in cooperation with, with technology experts from the from the Budapest University of Technology and Economics. So a very good example of this, this cooperation is, is our joint, joint participation in the Rosalind project. So Peter, just explain for us a little bit, what is Project Rosalind and, and why is it so important? Because obviously there's, there's so many BIS projects out there useful for our listeners to understand a bit of background on uh, Rosalind. Actually, Project Rosalind was a joint experimentation led by the Innovation Hubs London Centre uh, with the Bank of England. And uh, the purpose of the of the project was to explore how API frameworks could, could be used to support the functionality, uh, adaption, innovation of the CBDC systems by developing prototypes or POCs for an API layer or based on an API layer in a two-tier retail CBDC model. So in the phase one, they focused on, on developing an experimental open API platform for retail CBDC. And they it followed by a further phase where the, the main focus was on, on testing and validating the API functionality. And of course, exploring further use cases to understand the adoption and also supporting the ecosystem building. And this phase was supported by the Rosalind Tech Sprint. In March this year, the Rosalind Tech Sprint was launched and the BME, so the Technological University, together with the Central Bank of Hungary, in a cooperation, we tried to put actually two joint teams applied with two different use cases. And overall, 23 teams, mainly from big tech companies, uh, participated and demonstrated a diverse range of CBDC use cases. We were also a bit surprised that both both use cases uh, by our teams reached the semi-finals or has been selected. And one of them, one team also reached the finals where 12 teams has been selected. And in April this year, the selected teams were able to present their solution to a group of central banks at the demo day event. It's a great achievement, and I really want to hear more about the detail of the use cases. But before we go into that, Chris, could you just explain to a little bit of why Soda's involved in this? What role does does your organization play? Thank you very much, KTN. Um, yes, Soda works with the MNB and other central banks as they seek to bring public digital money to life. We don't have a particular technology that we favour or a particular approach in terms of utilising one technology over another, but we want to make sure that these experiments and these first steps that are taking place with public digital money result in end users using something which they can recognize as a different form of money. So it can do something that cash can't do and that commercial bank money can't do. And this is one of the things that um, uh, that, that fits into how Soda works with the MNB and other central banks. So this this point you mentioned on the new role of central bank money beyond commercial bank money, and we, it brings us to terms like programmability and smart contracts. And this then links back to Peter's point on the extensible API layer for retail CBDC payments, which was the BIS project. So can you just explain a little bit on why these terms are important for policy implications? Do we really need this programmability in CBDC with commercial bank money? Whether we need it or not is something that probably can be discussed ad infinitum. I mean, before we had the internet, we didn't need the internet. Before we had electricity, we didn't need electricity. 
The point is you've got something here which can change the way that money works for the end user. It can allow more economic activity. It can allow more economic relationships between more actors. At the moment, a transaction is between two principal parties for an exchange of money and value for goods or services or something similar. Smart contracts and programmability are terms which are probably used a little bit too often and they're probably used too widely. But what it essentially allows is more people to be part of an economic relationship, more people to be part of an agreement in a way which allows for more people to do more things. And it allows for multi-party agreements to be coded into the money itself. And the money can become a vehicle for a contract to be executed in a way that really isn't possible with the kind of analog banking system that we have and with cash, which has a geospatial element. So it allows more people in more places to do more things with money, which allows for more economic activity, more control over economic outcomes, and for more relationships to thrive in that way, particularly between more actors in, in, in the supply chain. That all sounds quite high level and quite kind of geeky in a way, but that's, I think, the best way we can explain it without getting into the technical details of how a smart contract is developed or how a smart or how programmability is executed. I would say that there's nothing to fear from this in that often, too often, programmability is used as a way of discussing how someone else will control your money. Better to see it as a way in which you can be more involved in the value that you create as an individual. I think that's a, a great point on a sort of easing the some of the scaremongering associated with programmability. It's about more control over privacy and confidentiality, which we'll come on to. Imro and Laszlo, yeah, we'd love to now come on to some of the more detail of these use cases then. So what were the use cases developed for Project Roseland and how did they employ smart contracts? Um, Imro, if you'd like to go first. Yes, thank you. So the first use case that we developed, the development of which I led, is about energy price support. That's something that we all know. There are various energy support schemes all around the world. Our core idea was to envision a price support regimen which tried to improve on many, or shall I say, say all aspects of what is currently in place in most countries, especially as the last years, especially in Europe, uh, posed some novel and quite urgent challenges in that regard. And after that ideation, we went to see how Rosalind as a CBDC platform can support implementing that scheme possibly better than the existing payment rails, the problems with which we all are quite aware of. So we created a system where we aimed for the government to be able to deliver financial support of energy bills. That was our target, the specific energy bills, adaptively designing on bill support on a case-by-case -case basis. And we created a support policy framework that considers citizen in-need status, as well as energy use savings over a 12-month rolling window. And this certainly can be re-parameterized adaptively with the full knowledge of the public, but this real-time and adaptive nature is something which seems to be quite unique and uh, new. Now, on the technical side, in the prototype, we created for the end user a mobile wallet application, which, which is nice and hides away all the technical details. 
And this wallet application coordinates with the systems of the governmental support office, as well as with the systems of the financial institution, which provides access to that citizen to the Rosalind CBDC platform. It's a two-layer CBDC. So the central bank at the center of the scheme does not directly provide access. Financial institutions still have a major role. And this wallet application at the same time is a CBDC wallet too. In the end, the bill is paid through Rosalind in CBDC so that the energy supplier is actually not aware whether the bill was supported uh, by the state or not. And if it was supported, then to what extent it was supported. This, we believe, is an important uh, and new element of privacy. And we created a mechanism uh, where the part of the bill covered by the citizen and the part covered by the support office are either paid together to settle the bill or both parties keep their funds. So this kind of trustless atomicity is an additional new aspect. There's essentially no need for the support office and the citizen to trust each other with regard to the parts of the bill being paid together or not, or is anybody doing anything uh, out of the rules, out of the bounds of the rules with uh, the funds. So that's the gist of the energy support use case. Really fascinating. And I think the trustless atomicity is a great term <laughs> that I think is helpful to understand why, why we're doing this and why we're using something like blockchain. A quick follow-up question. With the hash time locked contract, can you just explain how these fit in? Because this is another term that comes up a lot <laughs> that causes confusion. Yes, 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 yes. I try to do it, not using two technical terms. So these HTLCs or hash time lock contracts are actually smart contracts that the crypto blockchains pioneered. So think of Bitcoin and Ethereum and all the well, for some people, shady platforms, although much of the technological innovation does come from that world. And this is something that Rosalind implements too. At the core right now, Rosalind has a decentralized implementation and it does provide these facilities uh, at the API layer too, to the financial institutions and through the financial institutions if you like, through the stewardship of the financial institutions to the end users, citizens and businesses too. Now, certainly Rosalind provide these uh, smart contracts over CBDC and not some form of cryptocurrency as, as the public unpermissioned networks do. The details are a bit technical, but we can say that with a HDLC, we can put an amount of money under the custody of the Rosalind ledger itself as a kind of logged wire transfer, if you like. That wire transfer does have an intended recipient. If the intended recipient is able to show some predetermined secret to the ledger, which the, which the party submitting that special wire transfer determined, then they receive the money. That's been labeled for them and is held in custody by the ledger. Otherwise, after a while, we say after 
some timeout period, the creator of the HDLC gets the money back. Now, what we did without going too much into the details is to combine two HDLCs. Citizen uh, creates a HDLC for its own part of the build towards the support office. Support office creates an HDLC of the full build amount to uh, the citizen. And these two connected hash time lock contracts enable us to create a scheme where either both of them create the wire transfer and in the end, the citizen gets the full amount and the support office gets back the bill part of the citizen or nothing happens. Everybody keeps their funds after some timeout period. This is a nice and trustless way of creating the single amount of money that has to be paid to cover the bill. There's an additional element uh, that the citizen gets that amount of money to a special proxy account. That's a value-added service on the part of the financial institutions from where the outward flows, flows can only go to the energy supplier. But this is transparent. So the energy supplier, nobody knows that that's actually a special proxy account. So there are quite a few of moving parts, yeah. but if you break it down to the legal pieces, if you like, it's not that complicated, but you have to have these, these building blocks to be able to put together such a scheme. And Rosalind does have these as a form of financial API innovation. Let's just put it this way. Yeah, no, that's very useful and clear way of explaining it. I think often we have these technical terms, but you've explained it in a way that's very helpful and clear, a way of sort of holding and releasing money. Um, Laszlo, there was another use case. Please explain explain it to us and how, how it's similar and different to the one that Imra just touched upon. Thank you. So I led the car leasing use case implementation which was actually a mix of business analysis and technical innovation as we took the as-is business processes as bases to the extent that we were using the car leasing documents of IMREF, try to develop and adapt them for a more flexible and efficient operational model. So in a prototype, we included stakeholders like car dealerships, leasing companies, lending financial institutions, and insurance service providers and created a decentralized ecosystem on a private blockchain, which served as a collaboration platform. Certain state offices also participated in those operations where state policy enforcement and monitoring was relevant. Like for instance, an office for zero emission vehicles providing support for leasing contracts of electric cars. Blockchain here served tool for logging input documents, means for audit on compliance monitoring, a registry for output artifacts, and as an execution platform for financial transactions. CBDS, sorry, CBDC accounts provided by Rosalind were accessed via a payment infrastructure provider where these locking mechanisms mentioned by IMRE were used to guarantee atomic transactions. Right, so basically we're, we've got a streamlining car loans here but also you're adding these flexible conditions which can incentivize the use of electric vehicles as well if i've understood correctly yes we actually do have a mechanism to support agile policies 
by, let's say, translating high-level business decision tables to executable smart contracts. And we use these in this implementation as well. Excellent. And I think you both mentioned that you've managed to balance this privacy and confidentiality point, which I think keeps coming up in every single central bank's conversations on this. But I mean, taking a step back for a second, Peter and Chris, what, what do you see as some of the limitations of these use cases, as well as, I guess, the far reaching implications? Peter? Yeah, so I think both use cases can be considered quite promising. It's real use cases, so they are they are absolutely focusing on real life problems, and it's therefore it's worth thinking further and developing. However, it's quite important to note that they are POCs or or prototypes, so it's a proof of concept, so not production ready solutions that are ready to be deployed in a real-life environment. So therefore, to be ready for a large-scale implementation outside the simulated environments, probably further developments are needed in several areas, such as performance or privacy. From a policy perspective, I think one of the most interesting and also important limitation in both use cases is the involvement of numerous stakeholders. So the government, government agencies, also market players. So it is important and enormous challenge to to collaborate and negotiate uh, also with all relevant stakeholders, uh, also from a technological policy and also from a legal perspective. However, it's important to note that standardized solutions uh, such as API standards in Rosalind can help a lot in this. So for instance... That was a very, very useful goal of the of the project Rosalind that these kind of standardized uh, frameworks can really s- support uh, the, the the much smoother implementation of these quite complicated frameworks. Definitely, Chris. Thanks. Yes, I, I I agree with Peter. I mean, so do we often send concept notes to central banks, and we're looking for use cases which are kind of as sort of easy to help push forward digital money as possible. And the challenges here and the scale of the challenge are the number of actors involved. You do need banks involved in both of these use cases, probably certainly the car one. You need other actors like the energy ministry, the benefit, the benefits company that pays out the energy bills. You certainly also need the car leasing company or the or, or, or the broker. And so Whenever you get to the situation where a central bank or a government is considering a use case for public digital money such as this, which um, requires lots of actors, the scale of the challenge is, is, is quite steep. But also the promise is quite manifest as well, because this is something that functionally people can understand quickly how it can do better. And there are more things in the ecosystem that can grow. I mean, if we look at Tesla, the car company, they always say our car is an app. If you want to download real-time GPS, you can pay an extra $4 a month to get the air conditioning and the real-time GPS. There are all sorts of things you can start doing with this in terms of treating the car well, paying the loan off a bit earlier, utilizing the actual economic relationship with the car during the leasing period, which you just can't do at the moment, or which is very difficult to do at the moment. And so the the, the promise is certainly there, but the scale of the challenge is there. So um, this is all very encouraging. And I think that um, the more that this gets sort of closer to the coalface, the more we'll see uh, the levels of interest in these types of things growing. Thank you. Yeah, it certainly brings it to real life. 
Emma and Laszlo, before we close, I wanted to ask you both, what's the next steps for the research then? What are still the some of the open-ended questions that you'll be looking <clears> at in the next few phases? Um, Laszlo. So in the case of the car leasing use case, connecting blockchain as a transverse data sharing platform to a payment infrastructure creates several opportunities, just as Chris mentioned. We would be interested, for instance, in measuring the impact on cash flow management of participants there. And also we created a connection between blockchain here and the emerging EU data space initiatives for data sharing and collaboration. Besides, uh, let's say, covering additional processes of the leasing lifecycle, we are also working to improve existing processes and identifying the potential role of blockchain by means of sort of process mining methods there. Exciting. Oh yeah, we have we have many plans. There's a simple stuff. So you know, currently we do authentication and authorization in a quite old-fashioned way. We do want to replace it with standardized, decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials, optimally in a way compliant with the coming European digital identity wallets. So that will be a big change, and we have to ride that wave if you like. On the more deeper going side, uh, currently citizens for all kinds of these schemes, so this is not tied to our use case, have to submit all kinds of sensitive information to the support office or the support, support office mm -hmm. has to maintain databases of sensitive information. We are actually working on the other extreme, so where citizens could simply convince the support office about their support allowance and not telling anything more. This For this, we use something what the cryptographers call zero-knowledge proofs, and it's at kind of early stages, but this is very, very promising. Actually, this is already in place in those decentralized uh, identifiers and verifiable credential stuff um, already uh, standardized. We are looking at a uh, more domain-specific uh, use case for that. Um, where we will fall in the practice between these two extremes, the support office has everything on me, or I just prove mathematically, yes, yeah. that yes, this is my allowance, I wouldn't guess, but we do believe that we absolutely need both kinds of options. And last but not least, uh, there seems to be all kinds of interesting ways to monitor flows of funds in CBDC for ESG as well as sectorial policy purposes, both at the micro and the macro levels. Certainly the big challenge here is to ensure privacy and confidentiality for uh, citizens as well as uh, businesses. But again, this is technology, so we have to create the tools and policy will decide that what's necessary. Of course, and that's a great point to end on. Thank you so much, Imro, Laszlo, Chris and Peter. The Central Bank of Hungary and the Budapest University are doing such important work, I think, to bring a lot of this technical innovation to life. But also, I think, as you touched upon, the stakeholders and streamlining operations between government and civilians and those kind of wider economic benefits are crucial here and very, very important. So thank you again. Thanks for joining us all. You can find further information on Project Rosalind below. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. We release them every week and we cover a range of central banking issues. Thanks to all of you and have a lovely day.
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Omfif podcast.